Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, June 21st, 2012. Looking for my program notes. <laughs> Went on the air without them. Here we are. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Listen, the, the kingdom of God is not a democracy. The kingdom of God, doctrines are not chosen by consensus. In the kingdom of God, a sound biblical theology is not decided by your opinion or my opinion, or what we think might seem reasonable or rational or anything of the sort. No, the, the, the sound biblical doctrine is revealed in God's Word. Our task as the church is to diligently study and apply ourselves to God's Word. And it's there's ways in which that can be very easy and ways in which that can be very complicated. Uh, you can really spend the rest of your life studying the scriptures in depth, in the original languages, and really pour yourself into the text, and you will not exhaust uh, what God has revealed about himself. Every time you go around that track, you're going to understand more and more and more and more. The way I liken it is that sometimes when you read a complicated text, what do you do? You stop and you reread it. And then you go, okay, I think I get it. So what do you do again? You know what you do? You reread it. And so, um, you know, I, that's the that's the idea with Scripture is that each time we go through the text, and I mean not just a small portion of it, I mean the whole thing. Every time we work our way through the biblical text and then start again, the next time through we're going to understand and really begin to grasp more and more of it. It's not that... It's not that God's word goes deeper. It's that our understanding of the text continues to grow, especially as we grow older, have more life experience and wisdom under our belts, things like that. When we go, oh, yeah, that's what that text is talking about, you know, because, you know, I never made the connection how God's word addresses this problem or this topic. And that's the idea. And um, the problem is, is that... Um, well, in today's church, there's a full-blown rebellion, a full-blown rebellion in the church by so-called uh, leaders 
and pastors uh, within, you know, not just the seeker-driven movement. You you see this take on different varieties and different forms depending on the camp that you're in. So the seeker-driven movement would be a prime example of those pastors for the most part, not in every in every sense, but for the most part, have completely abandoned their job of preaching the full counsel of the Word of God and instead are doing their uh, their gosh darndest best to to make the the biblical text relevant to everybody by completely skipping all of the deep doctrinal stuff and only talking about life tips and principles that could make your life better and more successful. Now that's one way of doing it. Okay, then you get into liberal mainline denominations, those who have bought into higher criticism and things like that. What happens is is that they spend an inordinate amount of time deconstructing the text and attacking it. So there, there's a biblical text that basically completely decimates, destroys, and contradicts everything that they believe. And so what they'll do is they'll attack the biblical text and spend time in a sermon uh, or a Sunday school explaining how the text doesn't mean that. It's kind of a weird thing to actually listen to or experience. So, but the idea is this, is that, you know, every time you disobey God in that sense or refuse to bend the knee to his word, you're refusing to bend the knee to God himself because the authority of Scripture isn't something that just exists in a vacuum. The authority of Scripture exists by virtue of the fact that it is what God has revealed. Uh, we we read in, uh, in in the pastoral epistles that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, God chose means by which he would bring his word into the world, and that would be human instrumentation. The Bible didn't fall out of the sky. Instead, God inspired. God carried along through his spirit. God you know, and in some cases, God actually said right, and you know, and then there was dictation. So not all scripture is dictation, though, by the way, but all scripture is God breathed, and so the idea is, is it, because of the fact that all scripture is God breathed, it has the authority of God Himself behind it, and so the idea being this is that when you contradict God's word, you are in fact contradicting God. And you see, that's when we talk about the whole vision casting thing um, and why this is such an important debate to have, because a pastor who claims to have received a vision from God is claiming the highest possible authority in all of the universe or multiple universes, the highest authority that is as uh, as the justification for heading off in the direction that they're heading. And that would be God himself. Now, understand that that same authority that a vision-casting pastor is claiming to have for his individual vision is, in fact, the same exact authority that the Bible itself has. Its authority doesn't exist in and of itself. It it, it exists because all Scripture is God-breathed, and God the Holy Spirit is the one who brought those Scriptures into existence, breathed them into existence, inspired them, carried the biblical authors along as they wrote— and so, because God is the common author of all of those, then the authority goes to God. So when you contradict God's word, you're contradicting God. You have you basically brought put an idol up and said, "No, I'm going to do this." And what's funny is, is that you know when you look at the whole vision casting thing, I want to kind of harp on this a little bit because it's still fresh in my mind. Is when you look at the whole vision casting thing, you remember the quotes from Dan Sutherland, you know. 
Um, and others that, you know, you got to shoot the wolf. Why? Because they're, they're opposing the vision and the vision comes from God. And that means that they're claiming for their individual visions, the same authority that's, that's attached to scripture. Dangerous, dangerous things. I mean, consider this fact that the, uh, the Protestant Reformation truly fought for the concept of sola scriptura. You know, I mean, my, one of my questions for these guys who claim to be getting these direct visions from God is, well, how would you tell a Catholic um, that it wasn't the Virgin Mary that they were talking to in that Marian apparition? I mean, at, at this point, as soon as you open up this idea that, you know, listen, all these people are hearing these different things from God, and those all rise up to the same level as Scripture, you know, at least authority-wise, you challenge me, you're challenging God. You challenge my vision, you're challenging God. Well, you know... <laughs> Same thing goes for Marian apparitions and just about anybody who claims to be hearing from God. But see, that's why Scripture tells us to test everything. Test everything. Well, what are we to test it against? Answer, the Word of God. You look at, you know, what is it, Acts 17 that talks about the Bereans. The Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians because when the Apostle Paul preached the gospel to them, they tested his gospel against the written Word of God. Can you imagine if if uh, the Apostle Paul was a vision-casting uh, apostle? you know, out there casting vision, then the entire Berean synagogue would have been excommunicated for daring to question and challenge and test the gospel that the Apostle Paul was uh, preaching and teaching. And yet they're commended as having a noble character. See, that's the idea here is that we here at Fighting for the Faith are all about instructing you and bringing you along to kind of do something that's very uncomfortable. And it's that uncomfortable thing of saying, okay, there's my pastor, I'm going to hear him, and then I'm going to open my Bible to test to see if what he's telling me is true. If it's really coming from God, or if my pastor is one of those guys who is in rebellion to God and is using his pulpit time to distract me and lead me away from what he's supposed to be pointing me to, and that's our crucified and risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's really what it boils down. There's a, there's a gazillion different ways to do that. There's a gazillion different ways, but the idea is this. Get back into the Scriptures. Get back into God's Word. Get back into it. And if your pastor isn't in it, or if he's cherry-picking, you know, six verses out of context using multiple translations to tell people some relevant life tip kind of um, pep talk, you know, self-help, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of uh, masleration, well, then he's in rebellion to God. And that's what that is. It's flat-out rebellion. By the way, I don't know if you know this, I, I may have mentioned this in previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. I, you know, as I get old and creeping decrepitude creeps upon me, uh, my, you know, it becomes hard for me to remember exactly what I've done here on the program. But the idea is this: um, the the word apostasy, the Greek word apostasia. Do you know what it means? Do you know what that word means? I mean, when we think of, you think of the word apostasy, you think you know what it means, right? Um, uh, yeah, apostasy is when you teach false doctrine. Yeah, that's that's actually a symptom of apostasy, but that's not what the word apostasia means. Apostasia means rebellion. Rebellion. That's what the word itself means. And now you can understand. Oh, wait a second. If that if that's what the word means, 
then you understand that false doctrine and false teaching is only one symptom of rebellion against God, right? So when you think about the great apostasy that's prophesied in Scripture, um, then understand this, that what is being prophesied in Scripture for the end times, which we are in, is a great apostasy, a great rebellion. And so that you kind of get the gist of all of this, you know, every human being is born dead in trespasses and sins. Every single human being on planet Earth is born dead in trespasses and sins. So it's not talking about a great rebellion in the world. The world is already in rebellion to God by nature. Okay. But where the what what's talked about there, the great apostasy, is where the rebellion becomes the norm within the visible church. That within visible Christendom, it is marked by flat out, egregious, in your face, rebellion against God, his word, his commands, his instructions. And people within the visible church are basically sticking their tongues out at God and going, you know, don't worry, their destruction will catch up to them eventually. That's what scripture says. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Now, as promised, there was a couple of things I didn't get to uh, the other day that I promised I would get to. I'm going to get to those today. So, But we're going to start off with um, a Mike Bickle update. And I'm going to use the Patricia King update music because... Mike Bickle, as far as I'm concerned, is in the exact same theological, experiential, wacky camp that uh, Patricia King is in. And I'm going to point something out here. He's going to be talking about, um, you know, what do you do with somebody who prophesies something's going to take place and it doesn't come about? You know, what do you what do you do in a situation like that? Well, Mike Bickle apparently has come up with his own solution. It's not grounded in Scripture at all. But of course, you know, he's like, you know, one of the pinnacle super uber leaders of the Kansas City prophets in the IHOP uh, group out there. And now kind of wrapped up in the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at, you know, his advice, his opinion. And then we're just going to check it against the Word of God and see how that works. Um, then I'm going to uh, we'll probably take a break after that. And uh, when we come back from the uh, break... I'm going to basically walk you through a couple of the most recent um, additions to the uh, Museum of Idolatry. There's a sermon series uh, that uh, was recently, uh, it's actually, it just started, they're still in the middle of it, um, called Up Yours. We're going to listen to a little bit of audio from the, uh, the first sermon in the series. And uh, and then I'm going to also play for you, I'll probably play uh, Tommy Sparger sing first, but uh, we'll play for you a little bit of audio from uh, the... <clears throat> The video that was produced by uh, North Point in, uh, in Springfield, Missouri, uh, Tommy Sparger's church. I, I, it's kind of silly, but I'll, I'll tell you the story on the other side of the break. I mean, it was uh, a bonus exhibit we had to put in the Museum of Idolatry because Tommy Sparger sent me a tweet on Twitter. So, And then I'm going to read to you uh, portions of the uh, Christianity Today article that's pointing out the fact that uh, within the Southern Baptist Convention, the, you know, the debate on Calvinism is switched to, cha uh, to charges of heresy. And so we're going to take a look at that. And it's one of those just weird things where you got Calvinists and Arminians in the SBC on the same side of an argument. 
which is, again, you, you got to stand up and take note when something like that happens. And then for our sermon review today, <laughs> um, yeah, I'll just save it for the, you know hour number two. Let's just say that we're going to go down to Houston, Texas, to Fellowship of the Woodlands, and um, it's going to be another one of those sermons that uh, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, we'll talk about it on the uh, uh, in hour number two. Just if you've listened to this program for any length of time, then you know that there's a particular pastor down in Houston that's not Joel Osteen, um, uh, who's in the Woodlands, Texas, who every single time I review a sermon from him, it, it kind of more than sort of challenges my masculinity. So yeah, yeah, I'm convinced that this is a guy who is not capable of actually preaching a sermon with any testosterone in it. So I'm just saying. Anyway, but uh, you're, we'll save that for hour number two. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and that requires me to play this. Okay, uh, Mike Bickle of the IHOP fame uh, has a YouTube video that's up uh, from the IHOP Kansas City, and it's 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 part of a series they've put together called Ask Mike Bickle. And the question is, should prophets be disciplined when their prophetic words don't come to pass? Should prophets be disciplined? Now, here's the deal, okay? A question like this, it's a big question. I mean, you think about it, okay? Somebody has taken time to stand up in a public forum or to create a website or a YouTube video or you know somehow put out into the public discussion uh, a claim that goes along the lines of this. Thus saith the Lord, okay? When, when a prophet speaks, thus saith the Lord is the idea behind it. God, the word of the Lord came to me and God himself revealed that X, Y, or Z, and or Z is going to happen, right? Okay, the person is claiming prophetic insight into the future that God himself has given him or her. And what do you do then when that prophecy doesn't come about? Okay, let's say that, you know, a prophet gets up and says, Thus saith the Lord, the rapture itself is going to occur on May 26th, and May 26th comes and goes, and everybody's still here. Okay, um, what do you do with a prophet who put that information out there, claiming that thus saith the Lord? What do you do with them? Now, here's the deal, okay? When it comes to things like this, what do you do with a prophet who has prophesied falsely? Um, it is way above my pay grade and your pay grade and Mike Bickle's pay grade. Um, in fact, every any there isn't a human being alive that it's within their pay grade to make the decision as to what it is you're supposed to do with a prophet who has prophesied something is going to take place and then it doesn't take place. It's none of us have the authority to actually make this decision. Not one of us. So. The person we have to check with then is God. But let's listen to Mike Bickle and, and let's hear what he has to say about this uh, very important, and I mean that seriously, very important topic. Here's Mike Bickle. Well, here's somebody asking Mike Bickle the question, then his answer. 
a lot of the critics would, would say there's a bunch of platform ministries that speak out prophecies in this nation and yet those things don't come to pass. What should our approach be to, be to that? Because should there be any discipline if, if someone makes a big prophecy and then it doesn't come to pass? I think if a prophecy is spoken publicly or written or released publicly, because in the internet world you can write it or whatever, if whatever degree it's proclaimed at, to the best of your ability, because in the globalization internet world, it's hard to, you know, everywhere your word goes, you can't necessarily follow it. But to the best of your ability, within reason, whatever degree that you've ex- you've you've given the word, if the word ends up false or wrong, let's call it wrong. False sounds like you got a demon or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. That that's the thing, though, isn't it? Um, somebody claiming to receive a prophetic insight from God and it doesn't come to pass. I mean, what is the source of it then? I mean, you're only left with a couple of options after that because you can rule out God at that point. Well, it wasn't God who said that because God doesn't lie. So what are your only choices left after that? One, the person was prophesying the delusions of their own mind or... They were prophesying via the means of a demon. Though, I mean, those are your only other options left, right? But notice, I mean, you know, we let's not call it a false prophecy. <laughs> I don't know. No, that's kind of. Let's just say it's a wrong prophecy. Okay. Whatever degree that you've ex- you've you've given the word, if the word ends up false or wrong, let's call it wrong. False sounds like you got a demon or something. Yeah, which is a real possibility with you've prophesied falsely you know a false word that means like the brothers got horns you know he yeah that's a real possibility why are you poo-pooing that idea missed it he just missed it oh yeah that's what it is it was a you know it's like baseball you know listen you know we got to stop holding these prophets to you know you know to this idea that they got a bat a thousand i mean come on the best baseball players i mean they're they're only hitting what three out of ten times i mean so it's not that he got a prophecy wrong it's that it was he just swung and missed see it was a strike but it wasn't an out i think that if you miss it you sh- you must have the integrity to acknowledge it okay so first is first on this is so mike bickle's opinion if you if you've whiffed it if you if you gave a, a wrong prophecy if you just missed it well, the first thing you got to do is own up to it and say, ah, yeah, you know, sorry, I was totally wrong there. And within reason, I don't mean you spend a million dollars and go on an ad campaign to correct it to the whole world. I don't mean you, you put that kind of energy. But I think you get on the Internet or you get on the same platform, you know, and you're being filmed on the Internet and you say, I blew it. And it may not get to everybody who heard the wrong word, but it's out there. I think we have to do that. So, uh, so the I blew it thing, that's okay. We absolutely have to do that. So it, just fess up on it that you blew it. You, you swung and you missed. I think that prophetic... Notice the words. I think that. I think that. I think that. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that this is above his pay grade and that if we're going to find out what to do with somebody who's prophesied wrongly, falsely... Um, that we might want to check with God. Don't you think that would be a good idea? People that don't do that, it just, 
it's not good, you know. And <laughs> yeah, it's just not good. <laughs> it's a joke. Look, he's not even serious. It's a, yeah, you know. If somebody prophesied wrongly, <laughs> shucks, it's just not good. I will. I've I listen to people who who have said wrong things. Yeah, and I why. Still, I'm open to hear them. I don't. Why would you still be open to hear them if they've said wrong things? Don't write them off because they said something wrong. Because in you don't write them off because they said something wrong. Why not? The Old Testament, the idea is that if you said it wrong once, you're false, and that's an Old Testament. That's true, but in the Old Testament, there were a very small amount of prophets in the whole world. Uh huh. They're all in Israel. There's a real, for the whole globe, they're a very small number, and they heard direct audible voice words or open visions or an angel came, something like that. But in the New Testament, they uh, we prophesy by faith. There's a... Where does it say that? Impressions. Not only by faith, but there's impressions. That's why 1 Corinthians 14 says the prophets have to judge and discern each other. You didn't discern a prophet in the Old Testament. He's right or wrong or you stoned him. But in the New Testament... We prophesy by faith, it says in Romans 12.3 and 1 Corinthians 14. We Romans 12.3, we prophesy by faith, so that somehow means that we could be wrong. Hmm, hang on a second here. Romans 12.3, right? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. Hmm. Romans 12.3 doesn't say, well, we prophesy by faith, therefore we don't have to be 100% right. Yeah, something's going screwy here. You'll notice what he, he <laughs> what he's basically saying is, is that, listen, you know, the, the whole 100% thing back in the Old Testament, that just doesn't apply today. You know, we can be just, you know, we, you know, as long as we're in the general category of, uh, okay, right from time to time, that that's sufficient. Well, let's take a look at, by the way, what God has revealed in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Let's take a look at that passage, okay? If a prophet, by the way, this is Deuteronomy 13 verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... Okay, now notice what it's saying here. Dreamer of dreams. That sounds like impressions to me. Does it sound like impressions to you? Mm hmm. And the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion. There's the Hebrew version of it, by the way. That would, you know, if this was in the uh, Greek, it would be apostasia against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave uh, the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Okay. So here's okay. Now notice I'm I'm doing this a little bit backwards. There's a reason. 
Here's the idea. First and foremost, it's important for us to know that God has revealed in his word that from time to time, there will be, by his providential, um, you know, not, think, think of it this way, providentially, this is God allowing it to happen, okay? He, God's not the one sending false prophets, but the idea is that God providentially is allowing a false prophet to arise, a dreamer of dreams, who's teaching false doctrine, who's teaching idolatry. And, well, the thing that they prophesy will happen, actually happens. Okay, notice, this isn't somebody who's prophesying something that doesn't take place. This is something that does take place. Okay, so I'm doing this backwards. He's talking about what do you do with somebody who prophesies and it doesn't happen? Let's start with the what do you do with the prophecy that does take place? Because that means that you need to listen very carefully to the doctrine taught by any prophet. Any prophet who comes to you and says the sign's going to take place and the sign happens, the next thing you have to ask is, what is this guy teaching and confessing? Because I may be, um, we may be tested by God here, okay? Are we listening for God's voice or not? So listen carefully. So, and the prophet says, let us go after other gods which you have not known. Let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. So the important thing to listen for is God's voice. Where can I go and know with certainty that I am hearing God's voice? Answer, only in God's word, only in the written word of God. Okay? So the first thing, it is, regardless of their batting average, whether they're batting 1,000% or batting 300, all prophets today, you must listen very, very astutely to the doctrine that they're teaching because if they're teaching false doctrine, they are in rebellion, apostasy to God, and are teaching apostasy and rebellion to you. And you need to listen to God's voice and trust it, regardless of the miracles or signs or wonders that you see. That's the first piece. Now, there's another passage also in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that explains what to do when a prophecy is spoken and, well, it doesn't come to pass. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 18 Here's what it says. I'm going to start in verse 15 because I want you to see the greater context. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Okay? Oftentimes when we read in Scripture about what the prophecy, you know, how to handle a prophet, we just get to the punchline, but we miss some of the greater context here. It's important to note in Deuteronomy 18, which is the passage that does talk about what do you do with somebody who is a false prophet, um, that the that this is in the context of, first and foremost, Moses is pointing us to Jesus. Now, when Moses wrote this down, Jesus was a long way off, okay? But now Jesus has already come. So listen carefully. The Lord your God, Yahweh your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, 
from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see his great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Okay? So the first part of this this of this qualification of understanding how to understand a false prophet and a true prophet in Deuteronomy 18 is first and foremost the one you're supposed to be listening to is the Messiah himself Jesus okay I will put my words in his mouth he shall speak them uh, to them all that I've commanded him and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name I myself will require it of him. Okay? So who is the prophet that we're supposed to listen to? Jesus. Okay? So that's the important prophet that we're to be listening to. And since Jesus has already come, we already know what he's spoken. We already know what his words are. So in the grander context here, when we look at these qualifications regarding uh, prophets and how to test them, know this. Part of Deuteronomy 18 has already been fulfilled, and we are clearly instructed by Moses, okay? as And by the way, this, this coming from God, we're instructed by God through Moses that the, the really super important prophet, the really, 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 really important one we're to be listening to is Jesus, okay? Verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the Lord has not spoken, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now, what Mike Bickle omitted, and you know, here's the, it's an easy mistake to make because so many people don't read their Bibles and nor do they read it in context. That when we look at Deuteronomy 18, the clear instruction here is that the prophet we're to listen to is Jesus. He's already come. We are to apply ourselves to learning, marking, inwardly digesting, thinking on, and meditating, and not in a mystical kind of way, but that means thinking through over and again what Jesus himself has said. He is the prophet that we are commanded by God through Moses to be listening to. And as for these prophets, if they speak, you know, God says, how can you know I haven't spoken? If they say this is going to come to pass and it doesn't, then I haven't spoken that. You know that that's the case. So this is then cross-reference with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Right? So here's the idea. Do I need Mike Bickle and the Kansas City Prophets and their cadre and dossier of 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 prophets who are batting 300 or 400 do i need any of them not at all i don't need any of them because god's word itself in the context of testing the prophets makes it very clear that the one we're really 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 to be paying attention to looking for and then listening to is jesus so now that he's come, I can go to the words of Christ and know that I'm hearing the very word of God. I don't need a prophets who bat 300. I don't need prophets who bat 1,000 either. Neither of them are capable of eclipsing the one prophet we were told to listen to. And that prophet is Jesus Christ, the one whom God the Father sent, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried for your sins and for your salvation. He's the one we're to be listening to. The Kansas City prophets and all these folks in the New Apostolic Reformation, I don't need to listen to them because God's word tells me I shouldn't fear them or that I should come to the conclusion that I know that God is not speaking through them. And that's the thing. If somebody says something and it doesn't come to pass, I can say, well, based on Hebrews 18, it's clear. They didn't get it from God. I don't need to listen to you, nor do I need to fear you or worry about anything you said. You've completely discredited yourself. But that same passage says, you know the person who I'm supposed to be listening to? It's Jesus Christ. And to him and his voice will I listen to, and in his word shall I abide. That's what Scripture tells me. And that's what Scripture tells you as well. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway.
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Rosebro here with another useful technology product recommendation. Do you use an iPad or another competing tablet device? Well, if so, then you know how aggravating it is to constantly have to keep wiping off the smudge marks and fingerprints. Well, I've got the perfect solution for you. It's the Bamboo Stylus. Now, I've tried about a half a dozen different types of styluses over the years, and the Bamboo Stylus is by far the best stylus I've used. It's perfectly weighted, feels and works just like a high-end or high-priced pen. And I use my bamboo stylus every day with my iPad for writing notes, drawing, and other day-to-day tasks. If you're considering getting a stylus for your iPad or tablet, then you can't go wrong with the old bamboo. And the best part is they come in multiple colors. So to get yours, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and right there on our homepage, you'll see an ad banner that you can click on to purchase your bamboo. And a portion of your purchase will go to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That website again, fightingforthefaith.com. Look for the bamboo ad banner, click on it, and get your bamboo today. Warning, when somebody says they're hearing from God and the thing they prophesy doesn't come to pass, you know that they're not hearing from God, so that means you shouldn't listen to them. The one you're supposed to listen to, according to Scripture, is Jesus. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. We're still in the first leg of our bake sale, by the way. If you haven't picked up your copy of my mother-in-law's bracelet that she beaded and made to help us get through the summer months, well, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and uh, pick up your uh, your bracelet today. I mean, those who've re- received them are just raving about them. And uh, you know, like I said, these were made by my mother-in-law with love and care 
specifically to help us as a fundraiser over the summer to pay all of our bills during the summer slump. So, again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and get yours today. Of course, if you would like to uh, support us uh, by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, you click on one of the two friendly yellow buttons, uh, the donate button or the join our crew button. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now... Funny enough, even though I'm the curator of the Museum of Idolatry, I haven't ever thought about putting together music to intro us when we go into a Museum of Idolatry segment. But if you've uh, if you've been following me on Facebook and Twitter, then you've known that for about the last month, I have been regularly updating the Museum of Idolatry again. Now, I have a love-hate relationship with the site, even though I'm the one who put it up. And what I mean by that is this, is that for whatever reason, <laughs> there's periods of time when I can work on it, and then there's periods of time when it just, you know, the the miserable state of the church gets to me to the point where I can't keep working on it. <laughs> so I take a hiatus, I take a sabbatical, I step away from it for a little while, Deep breathly of the of the fresh air because you got to understand that I, I'm I'm absolutely convinced that I probably have the gift of spiritual dumpster diving. I don't know how this turns out this way, but I haven't seen anybody quite as gifted as I am as far as diving into the dumpsters of the church today and pulling out just gems uh, to share with you at the Museum of Idolatry. So if you if you've been listening to the program and you have not yet you know visited the Museum of Idolatry. You might want to do so, but I strongly recommend you need a beverage and you need time because, believe me, if you've never been to the Museum of Idolatry, <laughs> it's quite the experience. That's all I'm saying is is that people who've experienced it for the first time recently, I, I get emails from them going, I just discovered your website and I, and I, I think I'm going to go see my psychologist. I've scheduled the... A two-hour block of time. Yeah, it's it's things like that. You got you just trust me. Anyway, so uh, today at the Museum of Idolatry, um, I put up a uh, a blog post, uh, you know, an exhibit there. I call them exhibits called Rock Revival. A uh, Tommy Sparger of uh, North Point Church out there in Springfield, Missouri. Um, he, he is getting ready to launch into a summer series called Rock Revival, and he's going to have uh, music by such notable. Christian bands as the Foo Fighters and Lady Gaga. <coughs> yeah, you heard that right. It's it's right there on the. If you'd like to see it. So anyway, when I set, I, whenever I update the Museum of Idolatry, I send out a tweet and a Facebook status update, letting people know that there's a brand new exhibit in the Museum of Idolatry. And um and when I sent out the tweet today, I did include Tommy Sparger's Twitter name in the tweet. Boy, do I hate that word. But anyway, I included his name in the tweet, and he responded. And I'm thinking, okay. But what was funny is, is that <laughs> Tommy, here's what Tommy Sparger said. He says, I'm shocked you guys missed our Father's Day video. Get with it, man. And <laughs> it's like, well, you know, here's the deal. Is, is that 
just kind of a, an unwritten policy at the Museum of Idolatry is that we're an equal opportunity heresy reporting service, and we don't particularly like it when we give all of the heresy spotlight to one particular individual. But when you have a pastor requesting an exhibit be put in the Museum of Idolatry, you, you kind of have to take note. So I decided that, all right, I'll, I took, so I took a look at his um, Father's Day video and realized, yep, absolutely, this fits the bill for uh, its own exhibit in the Museum of Idolatry. So I named it the Tommy Sparger Bonus Exhibit. And, um, and, <laughs> and all I, I got to say is this, is that Tommy Sparger is wearing a wig. And um, it's supposed to be their attempt at relevant humor, you know, to kind of show you know people that they can poke fun at themselves, kind of thing. And it was a video they put together for Father's Day, but you'll know some things about it. What was funny is, is that when you look at Tommy Sparger's expression on his face during the video, I'm ki- I'm not I'm not joking. It looks like he's passing a kidney stone. So anyway, without any further ado, I'm going to play a little bit of the audio. Well, I may play the whole thing, but so here's the audio from this exhibit in the Museum of Idolatry. Um, the video made at North Point Church in uh, in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, the, one church, three locations, um, and um, and their Father's Day song. Here we go. Father's Day, Father's Day, Father's Day. I'm not into Bed Bath and Beyond, although they do have uh, film clips from the movie Top Gun. I mean, there's nothing like looking at a F-14 Tomcat chasing a yeah. Victoria's Secret. Weird thing to be singing the praises of in church. Now, in case you're wondering, why is it that I'm playing this whole thing? I'm trying to get my testosterone fixed right now before we get to the sermon review in hour two. Okay, so... (laughs) So that's the Tommy Sparger bonus exhibit there in the Museum of Idolatry. And you got to see it if you haven't seen it. I mean, it really looks like Tommy Sparger is passing a kidney stone. It's really kind of awkward. But 
<laughs> anyway, there was a there was an exhibit last week that I put in called the Up Yours Sermon Series. And here, here's the deal. These seeker-driven churches, I mean, they just are constantly – it's not even anymore that they're writing the line of blasphemy uh, and you know taking God's name in vain. They're overtly doing it now. And uh, what I thought I would do, if you, if you want to see the exhibit, it's, it's called Up Yours, the Sermon Series. And um, it's from a church called Church Relevant, Church Relevant. And uh, they're in James City, North Carolina. And uh, the slogan for this sermon series is literally, we are upping ours, so up yours. <laughs> and it's like really serious. Really, this is what's passing as Christian preaching or, you know, even a, you know, it's, it's, not, it's so offensive on so many levels. But you, I, what I thought I would do is so that you just don't think that you know, there, you know, that this is just a marketing gimmick. Gimmick that I would play the first couple minutes of the sermon itself for you. I'm not going to do a full blown sermon review on this sermon, but I want you to hear what. You, I mean, just two minutes is all it's going to take, and you're going to have this dialed in as to what's going on here. But listen in. Now that's that's the opening to their podcast. This is the Relevant Dream Podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Dedicated to becoming church relevant. We're tonight's Relevant Dream Podcast dedicating to becoming church relevant. Not proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins. Not discipling the nations, but you know what entertainment. Anyway, glad you guys are with us this morning. I really am. You guys excited about being here? Yeah. Well, you know, I have one word to say to you guys, and I will probably get tr in trouble from all the other Baptist pastors in town, and that is Up Yours. And the reason so is because we're kicking off this new series today called Up Yours. Yeah, he should get in trouble from not every, just the Baptists in town. He should get in trouble from every single denomination and non-denominational church in town, not just James City, but every, not every congregation not just the Baptists. This is no way to, this is just blasphemous. And we're going to be looking at different things that God challenges each and every one of us to up in our lives. And I was thinking this week, I don't know if you guys have ever done this or not, but how many of you have ever just kind of saw something, you know, maybe it's a clip like this or a picture or smelt something or saw something out that reminded you something from way back when, and you instantly were, mentally you went there. Has anybody ever done that, or am I the only weird one in here? Yeah, <laughs> that's two different questions. I am the only weird one in here. Can I get some people to ask this guy to leave and escort him on out this morning? No hacklers, please. Uh, I love you, dude. I love you, you know that. But we can't have you. No, seriously. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I was doing this the other day, and it's very interesting to see there's other people in here that do the same thing. And the reason so, I was reading in the Scriptures, and I was re reading in the book of Romans, I think it is, Romans chapter 11, and I read across this text, Romans chapter 11, verse 29, and it said, For God's gifts and God's calling on one's life is irrevocable. And when I read that passage, I was instantly... <laughs> read a single verse. I get, no, notice that they're reading the Bible fortune cookie style. Instantly catapulted to a time in my life when I worshiped everything but the one true thing that mattered the most. I worshiped my cars. I worshiped money. I mean, I, and it was all about me, 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 me. Has anybody ever done that before? No raising of hands. But it's the truth. We all do that. But when I saw that scripture, it instantly catapulted me to 10 or 15 years ago when that was my life. 
And then God, in the midst of it, began to say things to me. He began to challenge me. And one word or two words that actually came to me was God or what God was saying to me. He was saying, Toby, you need to up yours. Oh, man. Coming back to the prophecy thing here. um, So God apparently told this pastor from Church Relevant in James City, North Carolina, directly, you need to up yours. Oh. Yeah, I don't need to listen to this prophet. The prophet I need to listen to is Jesus. You not only need to up yours, you need to up your relationship with me. All law, no gospel. In such a way that it is compelling to other people. Mm, More law. That people will know where you've been, the brokenness and everything else that is in your life. And you know other people will see that you are a follower of me. So God says, up yours. Hmm. Yeah, so God says, up yours. Yeah, I just am having a hard time believing that the God of Scripture would be blaspheming himself like that. And uh, you see, you got to be real careful, dude. You know, you're speaking on behalf of God there from the pulpit, and you're basically attaching to God that God is saying to us to up yours. Yeah, that I mean, that is a serious breaking of the commandment that says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And this is tragic because this is what's passing for Christian preaching in so many congregations around the country and the world. And this isn't biblical preaching. This isn't Christian teaching. This is just crude, crass of preaching of whatever comes to your sinful mind and blaming it on God. Absolutely tragic. Moving along. From Christianity Today, you'll notice I'm taking my time getting to the Carrie Shook sermon. The headline reads, As Baptists prepare to meet, Calvinism debate shifts to heresy accusation. This was written by uh, Weston uh, Gentry of uh, Christianity Today. And it's important to note that this was written prior to the SBC 2012 convention. And so, you know, this uh, this is a little bit of an anachronism, but I, I want you to listen to what uh, is going on here. Uh, Winston Gentry writes, A statement by a non-Calvinist faction of the Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC, has launched infighting within the nation's largest Protestant denomination, and tensions are expected to escalate Tuesday as church leaders descend on New Orleans. Now, I I haven't seen the re, the resolution regarding this, so I'm not completely up to speed. I, I'm not exactly sure what transpired on Tuesday, but I'll be checking the news and trying to get myself up to speed so that I understand. But I don't understand the internecine um, workings of the SBC like at all. I'm an outsider looking in, so I you know. I'm, Curious to see what's going on. So while the election of of the denomination's first African-American president in its 167-year history will dominate the meeting's headlines, which it has, water cooler talk is sure to be fixated on the theological dirty word that for the past two weeks has spiked the blood pressure of theologians as much as it has uh, Baptist visits uh, to Wikipedia. The May 30th document, a statement of the traditional Southern Baptist understanding of God's plan of salvation, aims, uh, quote, to more carefully express what is generally believed by Southern Baptists about salvation. Which, by the way, is (laughs) 
that that's doing theology backwards. See, you, you don't ever want to more carefully express what is generally believed by a group of people. Mm-mm. You the goal the goal of good theology is to more carefully express what is revealed in God's word regarding salvation. See, that's the right way to go about it. When you want to basically do theology by consensus, you aren't going to arrive at truth necessarily. In fact, that's almost a perfect uh, formula for utter theological disaster. So when you do theology, you want to more carefully express what is taught and revealed in God's word, not what is generally believed in a group of people. You, you see what I'm saying? The authority doesn't reside in the group. The authority resides in what God has revealed in his word. Anyway, <clears throat> so, uh, but both Southern Baptist Theological Seminary President Albert Moeller and George W. Truett, Theological Seminary Professor Roger Olson, in separate blog posts said that parts of the document sounded like semi-Pelagianism a traditionally heretical understanding of Christian salvation. No, no, no. It's not a traditionally heretical understanding. It is a heretical understanding of Christian salvation. Yeah, notice, I mean, folks, we have got to get away from all of this hedge talk. Semi-Pelagianism is heretical, period. It doesn't square with God's word, and it has been rejected by the church throughout its entire history. It's been rejected for very good reasons, okay? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not traditionally heretical. It's heretical. It doesn't square with Scripture, and the Christian church has historically understood it as not squaring with Scripture and being heretical. Anyway, <clears throat> one, uh, one sliver of the document's second article particularly drew their ire. It reads, quote, we deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will. <laughs> well, then, you're Pelagian at worst and semi-Pelagian at best. That I mean, that's... <laughs> what is going on in the world? Seriously. I mean, you know... The post-elephant room, too, I mean, it's like we have had, apparently the, the, the church has had some kind of a theological lobotomy and is incapable of coherent thought. I mean, you got people literally out there saying, well, James uh, uh, James McDonald and Mark Driscoll say that uh, T.D. Jakes isn't a modalist, and see, he, he's not a modalist then. Don't you remember? He says he believes in one God and three persons as long as you understand a person to be a manifestation, so that means that he's not a modalist. It's it's like, are you so obtuse that you don't even understand that T.D. Jakes is claiming that he's a Trinitarian but is doing so using modalistic terms? That means that by definition he's a modalist. That would be like me saying, listen, I'm not a Lutheran. I just teach in a Lutheran church, and I completely subscribe to the Augsburg Confession and the Book of Concord as a correct understanding of uh, – uh, you know, I say that they've got – that's how God's word is to rightly be understood. But I'm not a Lutheran. You'd look at me like – Wait a sec, second. Are you pulling a fast one on me? <laughs> it's like, how do you, with a straight face, how can anybody with a straight face say, I am not a Pelagian and I'm not a semi-Pelagian. I just don't believe that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will. That's the definition of a Pelagian. 
somebody who denies that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of, of everybody's free will. That's the definition. So on the one hand, they're denying that they're Pelagian while at the same time affirming the very thing that makes a person Pelagian by definition. The world has gone crazy. <clears throat> anyway, let me continue. <clears throat> Even though the two scholars represent opposite ends of the evangelical spectrum on salvation, both made essentially the same allegation. This would be Al Mohler and the other president. The wording seems at best theologically careless and at worst represents a heretical understanding of sin, human nature, and the human will. Quote, this is what many lay people believe that they shouldn't, and pastors and theologians should be correcting, Olson said. My surprise is that the framers of the statement didn't immediately go back and rewrite it because it's so obviously and blatantly semi-Pelagian. Olson, a classical Arminian and author of the book Against Calvinism, is unaffiliated with the SBC, but has long asserted that most evangelicals, not just Southern Baptists, adhere to a sort of semi-Pelagian folk religion whose origins can be traced to the Second Great Awakening and revivalist in the mold of Charles Finney. He believes the new document proves his thesis. Quote, Traditional Christian doctrine, since Augustine anyway, has always been that people need a special infusion of God's grace. This is the Arminian view, by the way. To be able to respond to the gospel, both Calvinists and classical Arminians agree on that, he said. They haven't addressed that here at all. Okay, So the idea is this, is that um, the you know the Calvinist and the Arminian are both basically saying, listen, the human will is bound and God has to literally, by grace, grant you the ability to, well, the Armenian would say the ability to respond, whereas the Calvinists would say if if you responded, then God's regenerated you. You, you get the difference, anyway. And this, by the way, the uh, Lutheran and Calvinistic uh, view on this doctrine, almost identical down the line. And so, you know, where I would fit on this, I'm gonna I'm gonna just put my hand up in the air and say this is this is super simple. Are you ready? The Calvinists are right on this. Okay, the Armenians. I'm sorry, but their concept of this provenient grace. It, you can't support it biblically. It's actually philosophical. And that's just my personal opinion. Um, but anyway, so but it's important to note this. When you look at what's going on, you have in it the world has gone so crazy. Okay, you remember that line from the movie um, Ghostbusters? And you know it. You know there's a well. Actually, there's quite a few really good lines from that movie. But there's there's this one line. You know, talking about how crazy things have gone in the world, and cats and dogs living together. You know, things like that. It's just to demonstrate how crazy the world has become. This is what's happening right now. Okay. Normally, Calvinists and Arminians are at each other's throats, and they're debating this. This is a perennial debate in the you know, between those two groups, but. For the first time I in that I can remember, we now have Calvinists and Arminians <laughs> being united saying, whoa, wait a second, that person's wrong. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I'm not a I'm not a semi Pelagian. I just deny that Adam Sin uh, did anything to bind the human will or take away free will. Well then you're Pelagian by definition. And the <laughs> Oh man. Anyway, just more, you know, I personally, personally, I'd look at stuff like this and I go more proof. It's the end of the world. The end of the world has got to be close because now we've got Calvinists and Arminians hugging each other and being united <laughs> against. Anyway, 
Anyway, so that's just my opinion. I just wanted to share it. I just think it's theologically very interesting to watch what's happening. So there you have it. You know, you know, but that whole salvation document, they're basically, by definition, Pelagian. And that means that they are heretical. And they can sit there and say, we're not... Pelagian? Moi? No way! I'm not a Pelagian. I just deny that Adamson took away my free will. <clears throat> That's why I waited to read that until today, because yesterday, Phil Johnson did a fantastic job of laying out what was at stake regarding the Pelagian heresy. So, anyway, all right, we're up on our second break, and I am so disappointed about that fact, because right after the break, we are going to be listening to a sermon from Carrie Shook. Why am I doing this to myself? Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. That gentleman's got a walking stick, you see, who's got a cat. And the merry men of Robin Hood, they use the quarter staff. On Spanish plates inside their cave, they hide their ruddy sword. What thing they do with low bamboo when everyone applauds? Chris Rosebro here with another useful technology product recommendation. Do you use an iPad or another competing tablet device? Well, if so, then you know how aggravating it is to constantly have to keep wiping off the smudge marks and fingerprints. Well, I've got the perfect solution for you. It's the Bamboo Stylus. Now, I've tried about a half a dozen different types of styluses over the years, and the Bamboo Stylus is by far the best stylus I've used. It's perfectly weighted. Feels and works just like a high-end or high-priced pen. And I use my bamboo stylus every day with my iPad for writing notes, drawing, and other day-to-day -day tasks. If you're considering getting a stylus for your iPad or tablet, then you can't go wrong with the old bamboo. And the best part is they come in multiple colors. So to get yours, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and right there on our homepage, you'll see an ad banner that you can click on to purchase your bamboo. And a portion of your purchase will go to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That website again, fightingforthefaith.com. Look for the bamboo ad banner, click on it, and get your bamboo today. Okay, we're back. <laughs> I'm so not looking forward to this sermon review. <sighs> I'm beginning to think I need to retire um, 
Terry shook the way I've retired Joel Osteen. I can only handle Joel Osteen in small bites now. Oh, man. Here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today is Masloration. It's not really a sermon. Comes to us via Fellowship of the Woodlands, Woodlands, Texas. Carrie Shook presiding. The name of the Masloration is the Simple Revolution. <laughs> Apparently, hang on, let me read to you the. Uh, the info on this particular sermon, Masloration. Discovering the life-changing power of simplicity. Discover the life-changing power by rebuilding your life on simple and unshakable values, restoring your soul by slowing down and renewing your relationships with simple and consistent actions. <laughs> what does this have to do with the Bible? I mean, what does this have to do with Christianity at all? Ah, oh, you must slow down, young grasshopper. Make life more simple. Anyway, so without any further ado, I so don't want to do the sermon review. The <laughs> Here's Carrie Shook, the simple revolution. Here we go! Thank you for joining us for today's message from Pastor Carrie Shook. For more information about Carrie Shook Ministries, please visit us online at www.carrieshook.org. When I think of the town Mayberry RFD, the first <laughs> I knew it, I knew it. See, I can't even get like two seconds into it. He begins in Mayberry. <laughs> the word that comes to my mind is simple. Even the theme song on the Andy Griffith show was simple. Just someone whistling. Now, I realize if you're like my two college-age sons who never watch TV Land or the retro cable channels, you might not even know what Mayberry is. Well, Mayberry was the quaint small town in the old Andy Griffith show. Now, I want to point something out here. If you were to open up your Bible and go to the book of Maps, yeah, it's the last book of the Bible. Right after the book of Revelation, there's a section called Maps. If you were to look right there in your Bible, you know, at Cana, Galilee, um, Jerusalem, you know, right there, you know, Egypt and, and Israel, you wouldn't find a single city called Mayberry. Just saying. Mayberry was this mythical place that was always uncomplicated and totally laid back. Whether you were at Goober's gas station or Floyd's barbershop, you could always count on running into some Friendly people with simple yet strong values. Starting a new series this week, and I'm calling Mayberry. It's all about getting back to a simpler, more satisfying life. Now, the truth is we can't go back to simpler times. We live in a very complex world with complicated issues, and we lead very busy lives, so you can't go back to a simpler time. But we can't stop racing through life with no overarching purpose and no clearly defined values and priorities 
and we can get back to some simple yet often forgotten principles. I want us to go back to the original Mayberry, the Garden of Eden. God created this ultimate Mayberry, the Garden of Eden, and it was God's simple and profound plan that mankind would simply love God and take the time to love each other, to enjoy life in total fulfillment. But Adam and Eve were deceived. They bought the original lie, and it's the same lie that we buy into today. I want you to see what the Bible says about it in 1 Corinthians 11.3. It says, but I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Oh, he is not doing this. Really? He's going to just key in on the word simplicity? Oh, backing it up, you know, I, I want to hear it in context before we go into the biblical text to correct it. I mean, hi yi Into today, I want you to see what the Bible says about it in 1 Corinthians 11, 3. It says, but I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Satan deceived Adam and Eve into moving away from the simple values of just loving, trusting, and depending on God. Oh, oh, this is miserable. By the way, that's not found in 1 Corinthians. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And to give you just a little bit of context is what, what's going on there. Flip over in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and understand what's going on. The Apostle Paul here is writing against the super apostles. They weren't really super apostles. These were people who were coming in who were teaching a false Christ and a false Jesus. And the issue had nothing to do with complexity versus simplicity. It has everything to do with truth versus error, light versus darkness, a true gospel re, re, uh, as opposed to a false gospel. Okay, And uh, here's what <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll start at verse 1. I do wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a per pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. By the way, he's saying this as a rebuke, okay? You put up with it readily. They shouldn't be. Now, let me continue reading, okay? Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these so-called super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Now, keep in mind, these super apostles, they were all about money. Okay, sound familiar, right? And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who uh, came from Macedonia supplied my needs, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. 
as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced by the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. Because I do not love you. Well, God knows that I love you. And what and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms that we do. For such men are false apostles. They are deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So you see what's going on here? This is it, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 doesn't talk about, you know, you just need to find a way to get back to Mayberry RFD-like simplicity. No, because the, the issue here is that the super apostles were preaching a different Jesus and a different gospel and a different spirit. As a result of it, they're damned and condemned. These are deceitful workmen, wolves in sheep's clothing, agents of the devil masquerading as angels of light. That's what he's talking about here. Now, I find it sim uh, simply fascinating that <clears throat> Kerry Shook would rip that verse out of context and use it the way he's doing, because by doing so, hmm, I think he exposes himself to be like, just like the super apostles that the Apostle Paul is warning about, because he's twisting and mishandling God's word and not teaching it correctly. By the way, you cannot teach sound biblical doctrine by twisting God's word and teaching false doctrine as if it's true. It's impossible. You can't do it. But that's what he's attempting to do here. Because, I mean, if you were to talk to Carrie Shook, he'd say, oh, I believe the same things you do, Chris. I believe I'm, I'm orthodox. I don't deny the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe the Bible. I just don't teach it correctly. Or I just don't teach it in a way that you would necessarily approve of. But, see, we believe the same thing. But, see, here's the, here's the issue. Okay, when you have a conversation with a pastor like this, they will assure you, listen, I'm Orthodox. I believe the same things you do. I hold to the Christian faith. But here's that's not the issue. The issue is they can sit there and claim that they're Orthodox all the one. They can point you to an Orthodox statement of faith, but they're not teaching sound biblical doctrine. So what are the people in their care going to end up believing? Right. They're not going to end up believing the historic Christian faith. They're not going to believe sound biblical doctrine. They're going to believe these twisted words as if they're the truth. And they're going to think that's Christianity when it isn't. So Kerry Shook, he can, he can assure me all he wants that he's orthodox. He's not teaching orthodoxy. And the people who are learning from him aren't being taught the historic Christian faith. So it doesn't matter if he claims that he's orthodox or not. He ain't teaching it. We continue. To trying to be God. And that's our biggest problem. We move away from Mayberry. And that place of simply loving, trusting, and depending on God. And we act like we're superhuman with no limits. And we hurry and we worry and we try to control everything in our lives. And we just end up complicating everything in our lives. 
And we think the more we achieve, the more we accomplish, the more we accumulate, then the more satisfied we'll be. And we end up a long way from Mayberry, totally overwhelmed, our schedules overloaded and completely unfulfilled. And we're asking, why am I even doing what I'm doing? I mean, yeah, like that's humanity's big problem. I just don't have a Mayberry-like life anymore. My life has gotten complicated. And it's kind of like God the Holy Spirit. I mean, you think about that, you know, with the, the Patricia King gang and, uh, and the Holy Ghost answering machine, you know, where the Holy Spirit's all, Hi, Patricia. It's the Holy Spirit, you know. The world is so complicated, and I can't figure out how to use the Internet and find people anymore. So could you make one of those fancy videos and... And you get what I'm saying, but good night. This is ridiculous. You know, maybe I'm wondering if at the end of this they're going to be handing out, you know, coupons for, you know, $5 off at the local, you know, spa, you know, so you can get like, you know, the cucumbers and the eyeball, you know, you know what I'm saying. What's the purpose anyway? Why am I killing myself? What is this all about? So today, if you find yourself a long way from Mayberry, stressed out, worn out, and completely unfulfilled is good news. And the Bible says there's a way to get back to Mayberry. It's in Isaiah 61. And this is what Jesus wants to do in our hearts today, because this is a prophecy that foretold of what Christ's purpose would be on this earth and how Christ's followers would then pick up the mantle and continue that purpose. And it's nothing short of a simple revolution. I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 61, verse 4. A simple revel. So this, the revolution of the simple. <sighs> Boy, this is a simpleton sermon, isn't it? Isaiah what? So Isaiah taught this idea of simplicity too. Really? Hmm, I don't think so. I bet if we put that verse that, well, I don't even know what the verses you're going to read, but I'm sure if we put it back in context, it's not teaching the importance of Mayberry-like simplicity. It's an amazing passage. Would you stand in honor of God's word and just read it out loud with me? Just one verse. What a joke. You're going to, everybody stand in honor of God's word. We're going to read one verse. I mean, at that rate, how many, how many years do you think it's going to take? Probably a couple of hundred from to work his way through the whole Bible at that rate. Well, stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read a single verse. Unbelievable. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. You know, in our complicated world with its complex problems, people are crying out for simple. Oh, no. Oh, man. So Isaiah 61, verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. Yeah. They shall raise up the former devastations. Uh-huh. They shall repair the ruined cities. Yeah. The devastations of many generations. Yeah. And what does this have to do with simplicity? I mean, it sounds like a pretty complicated building project going on right here. Nothing. This isn't Mayberry. This is a construction zone. People today are hungry for the simple. People want to simplify their complicated lives. <laughs> what does this have to do with Isaiah 61 4? <laughs>
Ser- what was the purpose of reading that verse? And basically in this passage, God says that that's what Jesus came to do. Simplify the complicated. And that's really... <laughs> really, do you have a verse that says that? Jesus came to simplify the complicated. I mean, does he want us all in the lotus position going, um, so that we can simplify the complicated? Really genius to do that. And we're to lead a simple revolution as his followers has to be first an individual revolution that takes place in our hearts and then a corporate revolution that takes place in our families, our communities, and our nation. I mean, he's just making this up. Where is he getting this? But it is a simple revolution, and it involves three words in this passage. Rebuild, restore, and renew. The first thing I need to do... You're not even providing any context. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim the liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 61, verse 1 should sound familiar to you because this was the text that Jesus preached from in the synagogue in Nazareth. And he said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke and Matthew, makes it clear that this passage is about him, so this passage is about Jesus. Plain and simple, because Jesus is the one who read this passage about himself and applied it to himself. Got it? So if you're gonna have a if you're gonna come up with a subject different than Jesus, then you're contradicting Jesus. Anyway, so the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful head uh, dress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planted of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall, who's the they? The, The saints of the Lord, right? They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat of the wealth of the nations. In their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion set of dishonor. They shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion, for they have everlasting joy. Mm-hmm. This is an eschatological verse on top of it. This is about Christ and has the eschaton within its view. Oh, man, this is not about recovering a simple life. We continue. To get back to Mayberry is rebuild my life on simple and unshakable values. In Isaiah 61, 4, it says, rebuild the ancient ruins. When you rebuild ruins, you start with the foundation. And the foundation of a life is values. If you lose your values, your life will crumble. The foundation of a business is its values. If you lose your values, you'll lose the business eventually. The business will crumble. And so we have to rebuild our lives, our families, our communities, and this nation on simple but unshakable values. We make it far too complicated. 
Micah, the prophet, was talking to the people of Israel, and he said, you just overcomplicated things. You need to get back to the simple, powerful truths. Micah said that, really. They, they just overcomplicated things. Usually when God raises up a prophet, it's, the accusation is idolatry, not over, um, over-complexifying things. You think God is requiring you to do all these things, and you're trying to follow all these rules and regulations. Let me just make it real simple for you. Let me share with you these simple values you've left and you've forgotten. In verse 8, he says, He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So he says, act justly. That's the value of honesty. And when I think of Mayberry, I think of some honest, straightforward folks. If you mean what you say and you say what you mean, it reduces your stress. Whenever you try to tell everyone what you think they want to hear, it just complicates your life. Zechariah 8, 17 says, don't do or say what isn't so. Keep your life simple and honest. This is just, all these verses are ripped out of context. Yeah, the act justly, love mercy, that stuff, that's just, that's not super simple there. Um Micah 6, 8 is the one he quoted. Let me read verse 1, put it back in context. Hear the words, uh, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent you before Moses. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gagal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Yeah, see, it's not that they had overcomplicated things. It's that they had abandoned the Lord altogether. And um, they their religion was, you know, well, basically just a show. They didn't worship God with their hearts. They just went through the motions. That's what Micah's getting at here. We continue. Underline the word simple, underline the word honest, draw a line connecting the two. When you're always trying to please everyone else and say the things you think they want to hear, it gets complicated. And God says, honesty is simple. And honesty stands out in a sea of dishonesty in our society today. Honesty is attractive. Well, um, you're being dishonest with what God, what God's Word says, so you're part of that sea of dishonesty because you're twisting God's Word. When someone's just honest, that's what the Bible says, let your no be no and your yes be yes. And that we ought to say no more often right up front instead of acting like we're going to do something and never follow through and do it. Just be totally honest. And, and God is really challenging us 
to be consistently honest in our lives, in our relationships, in everything that we do. And it will stand out because it's so attractive and it's so different and it reduces your stress in a big way. Then there's the value of forgiveness. He says, love mercy. Nothing steals your joy quicker than holding on to hurt. In Colossians 3.13, it says, make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. We're to forgive because Christ forgave us. And we're also to forgive for our own sake. Tell me more about Jesus' forgiveness there. You kind of just ran right past it. That sounds dangerously close to the gospel there. Because when we hold on to hurt, we carry the complicated burden of bitterness. It complicates everything. Oh, man. Every time I hear Carrie Shook, I feel like I'm listening to a bearded version of Oprah. Oh, man. When we hold on to hurt and it turns into hate. Martin Luther King said, I've decided to stick with love because hate is too great a burden to bear. We, we forgive because Christ forgave us, but also for our own sake. We don't forgive to let the person who hurt us off the hook. We forgive for our own sake because when we hold on to the hurt, we have to carry around this complicated burden of bitterness that poisons every relationship in our lives. Now, I have to admit these values don't come naturally to me. We naturally gravitate back toward an overcrowded life. We naturally gravitate back. Would that be because we're born dead in trespasses and sins? Would that be the reason? Back toward not being completely honest and living in integrity. We naturally gravitate back toward holding on to grudges and holding on to hurts. But it's supernatural to forgive. It's supernatural to live consistently, honestly. It's supernatural to say. Yeah, tell me more about that supernatural forgiveness, you know, because then you could talk about Jesus and the cross. What you mean to mean what you say. Simple but supernatural. This is just moralism. You need God's power to do it, and you need God's power for the third thing. The Spiritual moralism. The value of humility. Remember Barney Fife? on the old Andy Griffith show, how he would always try to act important like he was somebody. He always trying to prove that he was a big deal, and he was all status and symbols. He had the uniform, the badge, the gun that had one bullet, and Andy would take it away from him all the time. Well, did you know the most popular character by far on the Andy Griffith show was Barney? Don Knotts, who did a brilliant job of playing the character of Barney Fife, won five Emmys for his role. Andy Griffith didn't win an Emmy. Barney was the most popular character by far, and I think it's because we can all relate to Barney, because we're all insecure. He was just insecure, always trying to act like he was important, like he was a big deal, always trying to impress people. And pride is just a cover-up for insecurity, and we're all insecure, and so that's why we try to impress people. And you impress people with your successes, but you influence people by sharing your weaknesses. And humility is not denying your strengths. It's just admitting your weaknesses. Well, not only do I need to rebuild on values that are simple but unshakable, I need to secondly restore my soul by simply slowing down. It says restore the places. So, yeah, he keeps referencing that Isaiah 61 verse, which has nothing to do with what he's preaching about, like at all. So the Isaiah 61 verse 4 is a pretext for all of this other stuff he's cramming into the passage that doesn't belong there. But, I mean, 
I thought it was Jesus who restores my soul. The, yeah, that would mean I need to hear about him and what he's done in context. Notice that this is not a coherent, lucid, in-context, preaching, teaching, and exegesis of God's word. This is basically Kerry Shook preaching what he wants to preach about. And so he's hopscotching all over the Bible, you know, jumping here, grabbing a little bit there, grab this and grab that, and weaving it all together into his sermon. But he's not actually teaching the Bible in context and telling us what God has revealed in context, that what God really wants us to understand is just a, it's a here, there, everywhere, all over the place, and and this is all moralizing. But there's no gospel here. I mean, it, he came really, really close to teaching it. But then, you know, we're back to all morals. It's long devastated. Our fast-paced, overcrowded lifestyles can be devastating to our souls. And for some of you, your soul has been devastated over the years. You've allowed your soul to atrophy and to dry up because you're not just a body. You're a spiritual being. You have a soul, and that soul needs to be fed just as your body needs to be fed. That soul needs to be rested. Yeah, and uh, isn't it the job of a pastor to feed Christ's sheep with the Word of God? Yeah, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the job of the pastor is to feed the sheep, right? Hmm. You know, based upon all these out-of-context verses, I don't think this constitutes a meal worthy of anybody's soul. ...and refreshed, just as your body needs to be refreshed. And we race around in our busy, overcrowded lives, and we don't stop and get still and allow our souls to be refreshed and restored. And we get what I call motion sickness of the soul because we're always doing things and we always have people around us and the radio blaring and the computer going and texting, emailing and doing all the things that we're constantly doing, totally connected, but we're disconnected from God and our souls are disconnected and our souls atrophy. We have to intentionally slow down. We can't go back to a simpler time and I don't want to go back to a simpler time. I like all the technology and all the things that we have now. But there's no other way to restore your soul than to do it the old-fashioned way, and that is to get still, to get quiet, let God begin to speak to your heart, and just in the quietness and the stillness where you tune everything else out and you tune into God, you read His Word, He begins to restore your soul. And some of you have motion sickness of the soul today, and you didn't know what it was, but you just know... You feel dissatisfied. Some yeah, you're the first person to talk about it. It's a little more mentioned in Scripture. Uh, none of the church fathers discussed it. Yeah, it's kind of this illness that you've made up all by yourself. Hmm. Something's not right. And it's because you're racing around doing all these important things, but you're not tending your soul. A disciplined time where you get... Now, this is where it's weird. Okay? <clears throat> Remember this. Uh, Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Right, you know, for you know, uh, God created the world in six days. So six days shall you work, and on the Sabbath you rest. That's the idea. So what did the children of Israel, as well as the church, do once a week? Stop work. Go into the house of the Lord. And hear the word taught. Right, this is what God's plan was for church okay and it goes all the way back to israel in the in the practice of the synagogue even 
You know, people would, you know, work for six days. And on the seventh day, they rested. And they would go and spend the day together in the synagogue or in church. Now, the Christians don't observe the Sabbath, which is Saturday. It's the Lord's Day. That would be Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. But the idea is still the same. Six days you work, one day you rest. And when you rest, you you go and you sit and you receive the word of the Lord. That was the idea. So, but in the seeker-driven model, yeah, no, you don't go to church to hear the word of the Lord. You go to the church to hear God's word, you know, taught in such a way that there's relevant life tips that'll uh, make your life better. But we're not really hearing the word of the Lord now, are we? So here he's admonishing people, you need to restore your soul. Then you need to do it by reading God's word, but don't expect me to read it to you or exegete it to you in context. No, no, no. We stand and we listen to one verse. That's all you're going to get. But it's up to you to go refresh and restore your soul. Do you not see the problem here? This is, I mean, this is unbelievable. Here he's telling these people they need to restore their soul by, uh, you know, stopping, getting silent and hearing God's word. And he's saying that to him in church. And the job of church is to disciple the nations and to preach the word. But he ain't doing that. That's the sickness that is so absolutely sick. It's, it's absolutely disgusting. The pastoral office has been hijacked. And this man is telling these people, they need to restore their soul by, you know, by uh, reading God's word. But he ain't going to exegete it. No way. Quiet every day is crucial. Your soul needs to be restored. Psalm 23 is a passage you're all familiar with. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Did you realize that sheep won't drink from fast-moving water because they're afraid they'll fall in? And a good shepherd leads the sheep to the still waters where they have no fears and they can relax and they can enjoy the refreshment. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the word pastor a shepherding term? A pastor is supposed to be a shepherd, right? Why aren't you taking them to the still waters of God's word and feeding them and watering them, giving them something to drink from God's word? Hmm? And if you let the good shepherd lead you, he'll lead you to the still waters. He'll lead you at times to just get still and allow him to refresh your soul. And the only way to do that is just stop. Now, it does say here, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Sometimes God has to make me lie down and get still. The shepherd in Bible times, whenever he would have a sheep that would wander off consistently, would out of love break one of the sheep's legs to keep it from wandering off because if it wandered off too much, it would get eaten by a wild animal. And so for the sheep's own good, the shepherd would break one of the legs so the sheep would be forced to stay next to the good shepherd and the good shepherd's protection. And sometimes God has to break our spiritual legs or our emotional legs or our physical legs to get us to slow down and to stop. If you never restore your soul, if you never take the time to rest and refresh. Isn't that what church is for? We come to church to rest, 
and refresh our soul in the preaching and proclamation of God's word and the receiving of the Lord's Supper. Isn't that why we're supposed to be at church, to refresh and restore our soul? Rather than giving a moralistic pep talk telling us how we need to refresh our soul, go read it for yourself. Eventually, you'll break down, and God will make you. God will make you slow down and stop, because when I slow down and stop, I listen to God's voice, and He gives me clear direction. We're going to talk more about this next week as we talk about how to have a simple schedule, accomplishing more by doing less, because one of the things that we haven't realized in our fast-paced, overloaded, overcrowded schedules is we're not very effective. We think if we're busy, we're important. If we're always running around doing things, then we must be getting a lot done, and we're not. Study after study now is showing that our multitasking is making us completely ineffective. And I do believe with all my heart the Bible gives us the answers on how to accomplish more by doing less, by being focused and effective. So I rebuild on simple but unshakable values, and then I have to restore my soul by slowing down. And then I have to renew my relationships with simple and consistent actions. It says here, renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Ruined cities represent our communities that are hurting because we neglect. No, they do not. They do not represent that in that text. That is absolutely false. Neglected what it takes to build deep and rewarding relationships. Families are fracturing at an alarming rate. Kids are growing up without role models. And when the family unit begins to disintegrate, a nation begins to disintegrate. And we've got to get back to... Yeah, I think uh, the nation's disintegrating because the church has completely abdicated its job of preaching the word. And this will be a prime example of a church that's abdicated its responsibility to preach the word. What we used to do to build deep relationships. When I think of Mayberry, another thing I, I think of is the front porch. I think it was Aunt B's front porch where Andy would sit out there in a rocking chair and strum the guitar and Barney and all the friends would come over and Opie and they would drink sweet tea and just take the time to talk. There's just no other way around it. We're always trying to save time. You cannot save time on relationships. You can't skim on relationships and expect them to work. Well, relationships come down to the little things that we do consistently. First John 3, 18, it says, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. We have to really act in truth. We have to really show the truth. Love is not a feeling. It's an action. It's a choice. It's a commitment. Now, I love the fact that Woodlands Church does all these big things because we say a big church makes a big impact. My wife always says, Carrie, we're not a big church. We're a small town. It's like a small town feel, and it's, you know, so friendly. And when our church was... A lot of people ask me today, Carrie, how does it feel that the church has grown? And I always say it feels the same when we were a church of 15 and when we were a church of 100 it feels the same to me, and it feels the same to Chris because it just feels like family. It's just a bigger family, but the dynamic and the spirit and everything is exactly the same. And, and, and so it's just a family. I guess we are a small town, but I love the fact now that we're large because a big church can make a big impact. And we've done some amazing things. You have done some amazing things as we've aligned ourselves. And, and during the Love at Last Sight Challenge, we're going to do some amazing things, build homes and, and you know, help the under-resourced and, and do amazing, huge things, solve big problems in Houston. But don't forget the little things. And by the way, we have a group in Haiti right now. We have a mission team in Haiti uh, rebuilding a water system. And Yeah, they're, are they uh, hearing about their crucified and risen Savior? Are they being called to repentance and the forgiveness of sins? In Jesus' name and trust in Him. 
for the forgiveness of your sins. Are they hearing that? I mean, who are the poor people in Haiti supposed to serve, huh? I mean, you know, if, if the, all these work, all this works, righteousness, moralistic, therapeutic, therapeutic deism, I'm not hearing a crucified and risen Savior here. I'm not hearing sound biblical doctrine. So, yeah, it's great that you're giving them fresh water and you're doing all the civic stuff. The Rotary Club does that. But uh, you're supposed to be proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to them. Are you doing that? You're not doing it there in Houston. What makes me think you'd be doing it in Haiti? Doing a lot at an orphanage, and, and we're going to be doing so much more in Haiti. But pray for that team there led by a couple of our pastors and that God will protect them, watch over them. Uh, but don't forget the little things. The little things make a big impact. Remember a while back I said, I want you to take a card from your program, and I want you to take this card that says a small act of kindness makes a world of difference, and do an act of kindness, random act of kindness for someone this week, maybe a neighbor. Do a random act of kindness. Pay it forward, man. A friend, maybe you rake the leaves in the yard, or, or maybe you wash the car, or maybe you go to the grocery store and help people with bags taken out to the car. Um, this is not the same thing as Christian sanctification, like not even close. I don't know, just whatever. Do something nice and then give them this card and don't expect anything in return. Uh, yeah, well, the card has the Fellowship of the Woodlands on it, so it's actually disingenuous for him to say, now just give him this card, but don't expect anything in return. Do something kind to somebody, then give him this card, which invites him to our church. Yeah, you're doing something with the expectation that they'll show up at your church. So these aren't just random acts of kindness. These are random acts of marketing kindness done to grow Carrie Shook's church. And it's amazing what happens because people always say, well, um, what's the catch? You know, I mean, can I pay you something? No. It's we love you. God loves you and just pass it on. People are shocked when you do something nice for them, but there's no hook. There, uh, you know, you're not- yeah, but the hook is that you expect them to show up at the church. You want to make sure that Fellowship of the Woodlands gets credit for the random act of kindness so they think, hmm, maybe I need to go to that church. You're not expecting anything in return. There's no strings attached. And one of the things I challenge you to do is go through drive through fast food restaurants and buy the person's meal behind you, then give the cashier the card and tell them to give it to the person and say, that crazy person in front of you just bought your meal and told me to give you this card. And I got so many letters. We called it junk food for Jesus. And it was just so impactful. We need Aunt B to tell you how healthy that is. But it was, it was amazing how little acts of love make a huge difference. Mother Teresa said, we can do no great things, only small things with great love. And then the ripple effect takes place. I got so many letters, but this one I just got last week. It's from a woman who grew up in a small town and went to church. And then when she moved here, got away from God, got married, and God was at the center of her marriage. And she says, our daughter was born with a congenital heart defect and had to have open heart surgery when she was about a year old. That was a very hard time for us. I blame God for doing this to us. About two years later, we decided to have another baby. My husband really wanted another child, and I did too. However, I was afraid the next one would have the same heart defect. My husband and I argued all night one night, and the next day I stayed home from work. I decided to go and get lunch at Chick-fil-A. This is when my life changed. I was pulling up to the drive when I noticed a lady in an SUV loaded with about five kids. I was next in line, but I waved her to go in front of me. I was having a miserable day, not knowing what was going to happen with my marriage. 
As I drove up to pay, the girl said that the lady in front of you paid for your food. I broke down crying. It was a sign. I finally understood that God is here and he will help you get through tough times. My husband and I started going to Woodlands Church every Sunday. Our relationship started to turn for the better. We trusted Christ, and he decided to get baptized when he saw the information about the big baptism. He asked if I wanted to get baptized with him. Of course, this is exactly what we needed. It was the best experience I've had. I wish I could have told the lady in the SUV what she did for me that day. She will never know. I know it was just a random act of kindness, but that is all I needed to find God. It's those small, consistent, loving actions that make a world of difference. Doc and Ann Holiday are great people in our church, and you know Doc, who leads worship and sings up here. It's amazing. Maybe you didn't know he's one of our ordained pastors, and he helps out so much in the pastoral care ministry, just ministering to people. But Doc and Ann went through a really rough time this last year. And Doc and Ann's love is so strong. I admire Ann so much, and they're just amazing people. And their marriage is stronger than ever. Well, Doc and Ann are going to share their story They share their story on video. It's all about commitment. It's all about real love. Just watch. Yeah, as you're listening to this, I mean, keep this in mind. um, Where is Christ? Where is a crucified and risen Savior? Where is sound biblical doctrine? This is one of those stories that tugs on your heartstrings, along with the soft, sappy music in the background to ensure the right emotion is evoked in kind of in a manipulative fashion but as before you listen to it where's jesus where is where is i mean seriously we've got what four or five verses out of context at this point nothing taught correctly and this is moralizing pay it forward mentality and now we're going to hear another story of life change and but where's Jesus? Isn't the Christian church supposed to preach and teach about him? Why is this not happening at this church? It was in an instant and our lives were changed forever. And in that instant, I had to make a choice. I had to choose to be all there, no matter what. My wife had a devastating stroke uh, August 9th of last year, and um, it basically did not seem real. She had a stroke in a traditional service while I was leading worship, and, you know, it seemed like it was, it just seems like it just, it just shouldn't be happening. The doctors uh, said that she shouldn't still be living. Her blood pressure was 300 over 200, and that was very, 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 very tough uh, to hear that. Uh, so, you know, we spent two weeks in, in the ICU uh, trying to get her blood pressure down. Finally, after about the 10th day, it finally came down. You know, after being in a hospital for two weeks in ICU, and uh, she's going through her ordeal, not really knowing where she where she was or what day it was or basically who hardly anybody was. Um, that was very tough for me. Um, so that was something that I had to come to grips with. And I, I questioned God and I asked God why. 
My wife is a great godly woman, a great mother, you know, and a great wife uh, to me. And why did that have to happen? She had so much to give. She's got so much to offer uh, the women. And um, just couldn't understand it at that time. And, you know, yeah, was this a reminder of their mortality that they're going to see Jesus and stand before him and thank him for dying on the cross for their sins? No, this is a wake up call. No, after, uh, as far as you know, focusing in on things here. After that, you know, we got put in a regular room. And finally, uh, about three, four days in the regular room, you know, I made the decision to transfer her to downtown to the medical center to start rehabilitation. The right side of her body was was paralyzed. She couldn't use the right side of her body. So we had to start. She started with learning how to walk and, you know, learning how to sit up and how to to use her hands. And, you know, it was like a baby, you know, learning first steps. As devastating as, as it was, um, in a way, it saved my life because I was afraid. I knew I was very badly out of shape. I, I wasn't healthy. It basically saved my life because if that hadn't happened to my wife. It basically saved my life. You're going to die someday, whether it saves your life or not. I mean, it's you're just adding a few more years on. What about Jesus? And what about the life everlasting? What about standing before him on Judgment Day? I mean, does this ever register with you guys at that church? I probably would have still been eating the same way and I wouldn't have been exercising, just putting it off, saying, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I was at the bedside with her one evening and she told me that she didn't want it to happen to me. She wanted me to take care of myself. So I promised her that I would. Now I'm very healthy. Uh, my wife is healthy and uh, she's basically you know, onto the road of recovery, which is, you know, slow, but I mean, she's come a long ways from where she was. Just being there with her has made me realize how important it is when you say those vows, that in sickness and in health, how important that is. I mean, when you say them, it's like a blur when you're getting married at the wedding. It's like a blur. You don't really remember a lot of the things that you say, but those things came back to me and it it's really humbled me and made me realize that I'm in this for life. It's not easy being all there. It's not easy at all. You first have to put your needs and your wants and what you want to do, you have to put those things to, to the side and think about how you can be there for that person and says, okay, I'm going to take care of this person. What I want to do can come second. I want to be able to help my wife get back to where she used to be. It's, it's worth it because she's my wife. And it just makes me very happy that God's given me the strength to do it, and I couldn't do it without him. I love my wife, and there's nothing that I wouldn't do for her. And that's... I hope end. you enjoyed the message today. and Yeah, that's the end of the sermon. I mean, how on earth can you with a straight face say that that's biblical teaching, that that's biblical preaching? 
that was just moralism with a few verses tacked onto it to make it look like it has something to do with Christianity and with God. Unbelievable. This is just sad. It's getting worse. You know, I mean, it's just absolutely getting worse out there. The, these guys are going from bad to worse. I, they've completely lost sight of what it is that Christ calls pastors to do. And that is to preach the word, disciple the nations, teaching all that Christ has commanded. Remember Deuteronomy 18 that I read earlier in the program, pointing us to Jesus. We are to listen to him, but they're not listening to him. He's not even there. I mean, did, I mean, was did Jesus show up at all in this sermon? Except for an honorable mention about something to do with forgiveness because he forgave us? Oh, yeah, you know, the, I'm glad that you got a footnote in there about Jesus. Unbelievable. This is absolutely sad. Because now you got a mega church full of people who are unconverted, unregenerate, on their way to hell... Believing that 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 there's that they're somehow okay with God, and the pastor's not doing his job of opening up the Bible and preaching the word and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Just absolutely tragic. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And these are the very things that Scripture has warned us about. That's the this is the fulfillment of the prophecy, warning in Scripture about these days, having a form of godliness, refusing, though, to hear sound doctrine, but wandered off into myths. That wasn't Christianity. It wasn't even good advice. It was just a feel-good emotional experience. That's all it was. At the end of the day, there was nothing to it. A couple of ripped-out-of-context verses, Lying and twisting of God's word. This is the kind of stuff that damns people. Keep in mind, you cannot teach sound biblical doctrine by teaching false doctrine and twisting God's word and teaching that as if that's the truth. You can't teach sound doctrine that way. It's impossible to do. Can't be done. Pray for the folks at the Woodlands there. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We're going to ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.